Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Deborah Capel on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Gulag Boss, a Soviet Memoir. Deborah is actually the translator of the book, and it is by Fyodor Vasilyevich Machulski. Machulski was a, as the title suggests, a gulag boss, that is, somebody who helped run the system of what are really slave labor camps in the Soviet Union. He was there between about 1940 and 1946. The memoir is extraordinarily interesting in that it gives us a glimpse of the operation of the camps from the point of view of the people who controlled them. And in this way, we can get a certain amount of access to the mindset that they brought to their work. And the results are, in the case of Machulski, very, very interesting, because like many of the, I guess I might call them perpetrators, he has a reasonably clear conscience about what he did. He didn't write the memoir until the 1990s when the Soviet Union had collapsed. But nonetheless, we don't see a lot of attention to the fact that, as I say, he really was in charge of groups of slaves, and many of them died under his control. He is not exactly unrepentant. He does see that there were I guess you would call them excesses in the system, but the system itself, he never really questions. I really enjoyed talking to Deborah today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Good. I should tell our listeners that we have Deborah Capel on the show today, and we'll be talking about her book, Gulag Boss, a Soviet memoir. Actually, she is the introducer and translator of this book, which is by a fellow named Fyodor Vasilievich Machulski, uh, who is the gulag boss in the aforementioned title. This is really a very, very interesting book. It falls into the genre, I guess is what I would call it is, uh, at least in German historiography, it's called perpetrator studies. I don't particularly like that phrase. But anyway, Machulski was, uh, the, the, um, he, he worked at or was a, a kind of sub-commandant at one of the northern gulag camps from 1940 to 1946, And then he went on to quite a career in the Soviet Union and eventually traveled to China and was a diplomat. And then in the late 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, he he wrote this memoir in what I think is kind of an attempt to understand exactly what he had done and why he had done it. It's really, I think it's a really interesting read. And I think Deborah really deserves to be congratulated on on finding the book, uh, we'll talk about that in a second, and then very ably translating it. And I, and I also should say that Oxford University Press deserves a shout-out for publishing it because uh, I think that it's the case that academic presses publish fewer and fewer of, of this kind of very valuable thing these days. So I was, I'm really very happy to see it come out from a, a very good university press. Deborah, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I was... Um I was raised in northwestern Ohio in a farming village of maybe 2,000 people. And I say I was raised there because I was born in Miami, Florida. My parents, who are from that area, actually eloped in, uh, <laughs> to Miami, Florida and, and had me. And then, of course, returned to the fold. So I grew up in this uh, small town. My mother worked on the uh, line building engines at the Ford Motor Company. And my father is a carpenter. And I have five sisters. Wow. Um, Let's see. I went to college. I went to Ohio State University as a good Ohioan might, Mm -hmm. where I was very fortunate to um, learn Russian language and learned it well there. It was a wonderful place for me. Um, I started out as an art major, actually. I had in mind, as a working class person, to go to college and learn to be a potter, which I did. And the idea was to open a pottery store somewhere. My father would build me the studio, Mm -hmm. maybe a store. (laughs) 
But because I was an art major, I needed to take a language. And um, Russian language was kind of famous at Ohio State in those days. Uh, we had good teachers and it was doing great things. And I guess it came into my consciousness. Somehow I decided for my language requirement that I would study Russian and I turned out to be good at it. Um, and at the same time, when I was a, I guess, a second year language student, Ohio State initiated an exchange with the Pushkin Language Institute. And they were going to take three students from Ohio State and the rest of the 21 students, whatever, from other universities. And somehow I competed and was given a spot at this institute, which changed my whole world. I went to Moscow then for four months um, when I was about the same age as Mr. Mitrolsky was. Mm -hmm. When he went to the Gulag, I went to Moscow when I was about 21. So that changed everything. I came back and changed my major. Can I, can I, can I interrupt for a second? I was uh, actually on the... Ohio State language program in 1985. Wow. Yeah, I went to the Pushkin Institute too. On you the did? I did, yeah, I did. Yeah, wow. no, I, went, I lived in the Abshashitya there and the whole nine yards. So I was going to go Buckeyes. Well, I think we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go Bucks. I think we built your Abshashitya because oh, yeah. we lived in the Gostinitsa Universitetskaya. Oh, yeah. We helped uh, on the Subotniks, we helped to build that place. Oh, is that right? That's funny. Oh, God. Yeah. So it was a really good experience for me, and it changed my whole orientation, and I decided I wanted to study the Soviet Union. Um, after that, I, um, I went to Washington, D.C., where I had an internship in the intelligence research on Russia and China. I worked with the big um, Sino-Soviet border officer, which was really fascinating, and I got a, a master's degree at George Washington University in International Studies. And I focused on um, the Soviet economy. And I also had the wonderful fortune of working at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, where I was the research assistant for Joe Berliner, wow. who's an economist, and then uh, Marie Feshbach. Uh -huh, yeah. no, those are both big names in um, Russian studies, for those They're of you who don't names. know. Very big names. Yes, and they were wonderful, wonderful mentors to me actually, maybe my best, taught me the most. Marie Feshbeck in particular taught me almost everything I know about evaluating sources that come from Russia. Mm -hmm. He's very, just a totally excellent scholar. And then I worked for five years at, um, in Washington at Wharton Econometrics in the uh, Centrally Planned Economies Division, working on Russia and China and Eastern Europe on their economies. So after doing that for about five years, as I said, I decided I might go to graduate school because I really wanted to pursue getting a Ph.D. And I landed at Princeton. I got my degree at Princeton University. Um, what else can I tell you? <laughs> well, and then um, you, you wrote a book about um, uh, China. Is that correct? Because somehow you picked up Chinese along the way, too. Yes, I did. That's not just something you should, you know, that most people can't say that I picked up Chinese along the way. That, I'm, I not, I, I'm not going to, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty impressive thing. Why don't you tell, talk a little bit about that? It's a little crazy. Well, I, as I said, I was always interested in China and the Sino-Soviet relationship, starting from working with Peter Kolm at the State Department. And I studied Chinese while I was in Washington. I took a year of Chinese at Georgetown University, and I really liked it. So when I came to graduate school, of course, Princeton has a stellar Chinese language program, still does. Um, um, I talked to my advisor, who was Gil Rosman, and he said, why don't you try to, um, in sociology, it's a great thing to go into comparative study of societies, and why not take on the two biggest examples of socialism, which interested me. So I started studying Chinese here at Princeton, and I had wonderful teachers again, and I spent time in um, Beijing at the Beijing Language Institute. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to China um, for a summer Later, where I was a guest at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, working on um, my dissertation, which was all about China's transformation to communism in the 1950s and the role of the Soviet model. Mm -hmm. And that's the book that I published. Mm -hmm. So all this time I've been interested in socialism, in how it works, and also how knowledge and ideas and technology can transfer from one country to another. Which is what that's about. I don't want to. I don't want to um, flatter you, I guess. But uh, one of the things I'm very concerned about in my own life is becoming narrow because I, I basically only do about three things: uh, 
sleep, change diapers, and <laughs> teach history. But I was looking at your webpage, and you seem to do everything. Well, you make stained glass. Is that right? I do. I, I mean, do. you do all these things. It's really quite remarkable. You're sort of a Renaissance woman. And I mean that in the full blooded sense. Yes. And I have the other crazy, crazy idea that I write fiction. Yeah. I mean, you do all these things. I, you know, so those of you who are uh, thinking about becoming historians at, or, or social scientists in general, don't worry about it. Just look at Deborah and she can be your model. Not me, for God's sake. Because it's, <laughs> you know, my world is about the size of a postage stamp. Well, so, that's because your children are little. Yeah, that's right. But anyway, it's, I, I, I thought it was just Thank really you. very interesting, all of the different things that you do. And I'd love to talk about how they inform your work, but I want to move on to the book itself. There's a very interesting story I happen to know, so I'm going to pretend I don't, and I'm going to ask you to tell the story of how you found this memoir. It is, it is an interesting story. I, I was part of the Woodrow Wilson International Center of Scholars initiative in the early 90s to help the Russians open their archives. And I think this meant on their part, part like a transfer of money and promises <laughs> on the Russians' part for the opening of the archive for their scholars. We were called the, the New Cold War Historian. So we arrive in 1992 with the big guys, and everybody's very happy, and it's very nice. And then the big guys go back to Washington, D.C., and the little guys are there in the archives where I am trying to write a history of, or research a history of the Soviet advisors in China in the 1950s, which is exactly my interest. And there is not a history yet written about that. It was a program that Stalin initiated um, for the Chinese in the early 1950s to send about 10,000 Soviet advisors to China to help China make a transformation from its former government and system to become socialist. And he sent, you know, people from every walks of life, all walks of life, you know, radio engineers, uh, party ideologists, you name it, they, they were sent. So all I wanted to do in the Communist Party archives was to find stuff out about that program and maybe even meet some of the people who went. But at the time, um, the same old people from the old Communist Party ran that archive and they were not interested in my topic at all. <laughs> in fact, many times did not give me my files and many times lectured me about um, that I needed to change my topic and this and that. And after six months of sitting through this at the archive, I felt a little desperate because I was still there for several months and I wasn't getting very far. So I did that crazy American thing, I guess you have to say. And I put an ad in Pravda. <laughs> I'm going to, yes, I'm going to, sometimes I teach a historical methods class here. And I'm, <laughs> that's not one of the things that we normally discuss, but I'm definitely going to uh, include it in the next syllabus. There the ad go. in the newspaper. Ad in the newspaper. Put an ad. It's a very nice ad. It's uh you know, bigger than you might think. It's like two inches by an inch, whatever. And it has says, worked in China in the 1950s? If so, this Princeton um, researcher wants to talk to you. And I put my friend Alichka in charge of answering the phone for this. She she helped me craft the ad, too, so to get it right. And I paid my few rubles, and off it went. And she got about 300 phone calls. Jesus. This is after the people of the archive said, stop even talking about the advisors because none of them came from Moscow and they're all dead anyway. Yeah. That's what they were trying to tell me. But that wasn't true, of course. So I narrowed it down because I was only one person. And by the way, I was pregnant at the time. My husband was with me and we somehow managed to begin our family in Russia. <laughs> and um, I interviewed about 30 of these advisors at the time. And all of them were thrilled to meet me because in their lives, this two-year stint that they'd spent in um, China was actually supposed to remain a secret. Huh. And But this year is 1992, and everything is bursting apart anyway. And now they can tell their story. And now there are so many other bigger stories. Nobody wants to hear those stories. So I burst on the scene and show up, and I'm the biggest hero going. And these people told me their stories, which I, you know, I... Um, took down on tape, and they also passed me things that they'd written, pictures, uh, mementos, medals, all kinds of things. It was a very fun and exciting thing. One of the people I interviewed was uh, Fyodor Machulski, who I chose because he had been sent there as a party ideologist in the early 50s, and I was interested in that role. 
um, that he had. So towards my end of the stay in Moscow, and now many of them called me back, by the way, and I have other memoirs in my office. (laughs) (laughs) This Machulski says, I have one more thing to, to tell you, so you need to meet me in the park. And I met him. And he handed me this gulag memoir. And he said, I didn't tell you before, but I was um, a boss in the gulag. And I've written this memoir I tried to publish because everything's being published now. But I can't get anybody interested, which is surprising because he had pretty good connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I like you. And I think um, I do think that there is an audience for this. And I'd like to just give it to you. Mm-hmm. So he gave me that and about 35 photographs that he took himself in the 1940s, little tiny black and whites, which you can see in the book, mm-hmm. which we've lightened up and, you know, <laughs> increased the size of. Mm-hmm. Well, I took the book and I was a little nonplussed because I hadn't thought that I'd been speaking to a gulag boss all this time, but I put it, I took it out of politeness. I'll, I'll be honest. I just took it and put it with the other memoir about um, setting up um, Pravda in Peking and all these, I have others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I put it away, and I didn't look at it for several years. I have to admit, I was busy on other projects. Mm -hmm. So when uh, my family and I decided to take a sabbatical year and go to Spain, I got it back out, and I read it. I was looking for a project to do there. And I realized, you know, once I looked into it, we just don't have the voice Mm -hmm. of the boss in our literature. Mm -hmm. And I read it, and I decided it was a fantastic document, deserved to be translated, and I need my head examined because I never translate anything. So <laughs> it was a big steep learning curve all by myself with my dictionaries. Yeah, right. But it was good. It, yeah. it, was, it was good. Yeah, so this book is interesting in the sense that it will come out in English before it comes out in Russian. Exactly. If it ever comes out in Russian. If it ever comes out in Russian because I signed a contract with um, Michulski's son. Michulski passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And he has the Russian language rights, as he should. Uh-huh. And he wants to publish it in Russia, but I don't know whether he will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't we begin talking about Machulski himself. Tell us uh, a little bit about his life. Where was he born and in what circumstances and uh, how did he make his way uh, to Moscow? Let's take him that far. Okay. He was born uh, in Belarusia. His parents lived in Minsk. He had a couple of siblings. His dad was a university professor, and he was studying uh, Belarusian literature. And sometime in the 1930s, colleagues of his were beginning to disappear. As you know, the Great Terror was taking place. And Machulski only had a faint recollection of it, but he did understand because his father came to him once and said, if something happens to me, you're the head of the family. He knew it was serious. Well, In any case, the father somehow managed to move them, before he was purged, to Moscow. And he later got a job at Moscow University teaching literature in Belarusian language, I think. Um, At this point, Machulski was about 16 or 17, and he took a job in Moscow at a factory. And he joined the Komsomol, the communist youth organization there, and segued from that job and being in, uh, early on in the party, segued into something that really interested him, which was he got um, a degree at the Russia, let's see, Moscow Railway Engineering Institute. Mm-hmm. So when he was about to graduate, it was in 1940, and he was 22 years old. He was part of a very large cohort of people that uh, actually worked their way through these engineering schools, then vastly expanded or expanded since the 1930s. Because uh, at that time, I should tell our listeners, um, uh, building socialism was really all about building. Right. Uh, they were literally building lots of things. That was the idea. Uh, and they engineers. Yeah. Yes, and they needed engineers desperately. Um, now, he had uh, both good connections and uh, was a good student and an upright fellow and a member of the Komsomol is that how he came to the intention of the NKVD and how he was tapped to work in the um, northern camp system? Well, I think so. But I also happen to know that the gulag system had was in a bit of a mess because of the really because of the Great Terror. The numbers of people who were sent to the camps from 1937 to 39, 40 were in the hundreds of thousands and they were overwhelmed. 
and the camp directors were not doing a great job in the camps. They were just barely keeping people alive. And the idea occurred to somebody, why don't we get some new bosses up there and some new people who are trusted Communist Party members? And in this way, um, the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, if you can imagine, it's like, I don't know, President Obama's cabinet member, mm-hmm. <laughs> called these boys up, three young boys from this institute, and told them to come for an interview and told them that their next job, which they owed anyway to the Soviet government for their higher education, two-year stint, their next job would be at um, a place where they could really use their um, engineering skills. The, the conditions would be challenging. And yet the project that they would be working on would, be, uh, would have a high government priority. Mm-hmm. And it turns out he was telling them about a camp that was just being set up to build a rail line from the northern city of Varkuta down to central Russia. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they were so um, excited about building this is because they realized, even though they didn't say so out loud, they realized the Nazis were going to attack them. And they knew, this is 1940, and they knew that the Nazis were going to come in through the Ukraine and take out the oil and gas fields in the Donbass. If they didn't have the coal, the Soviets could not win the war. So they knew already about this very huge, very large um, coal basin in Varkuta. And already when the Central Committee was talking to Machulski, they were sending hundreds of thousands of prisoners up there to open those uh, mines and start mining coal. But they needed to get the coal down there from Varkuta, there were no rail lines, down to central Russia mm-hmm. to the industry so they could win the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was hired to or he was sent to help build that rail line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about Varkuta um, and wh- where it is and what it is? How could you ex- describe to an audience exactly the um, the the... I guess one would call it the conditions at Varkuta. Where is it and what's it like? Varkuta is a city in Russia's north, and it's properly located in what's called the Komi province. And it's above the Arctic Circle. It wasn't a developed um, town at all. It just was a coal basin when the prisoners got there. And in fact, the entire province of Komi, um, I think as Anne Applebaum says in her book, uh, Gulag History, Gulag History, says that the Komi province is a totally prisoner-built mm-hmm. province. Every city, Varkuta, Sikvitar, Kodlas, all those cities, all the rail lines, all the industry mm-hmm. were built with slave labor. Mm-hmm. So Varkuta is a very, um, in those days, was a probably really scary place. It's winter time at the Arctic Circle. Most of the time, there are two months of the year when it's not really snowing. So the conditions of working, and especially as gulag prisoners uh, working outside in the elements, was very, very tough. Mm-hmm. So we should think of a place that's not unlike Alaska, if you're an American. Right. Yes, exactly. Kind of the interior of Alaska, a place that's it's very, very remote. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, now, there are native peoples there, and they are the Komi, um, but they, they live a traditional kind of a, a little bit like um, laps. I think they live like laps, and mm-hmm. a reindeer economy. Exactly. Or something like that, yeah. But the Russians arrived there uh, quite late because it was so inhospitable. And then, um, as you say, they arrived there to extract mineral resources. Now, when were, when were the camps first set up in um, on the Pechora and in, in Virkuta? Well, you know, there um, they were actually set up earlier. There had been other ideas like this previous, but they never took. And so there were some barracks and some smallish camps, but this camp actually was started in like 1940. So mm-hmm. in other words, when Machulski, he doesn't say this in the book, but I happened to look it up in the Russian sources. So his camp, when he got there, had 3,900 prisoners. And then six months later, it had 35,000 and six months later it had 90,000. So it was all ramping up, and it, the numbers are incredible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The a rail line they were building was 310 miles long. So the camp was 310 miles long, basically. Yeah. So uh, he's dispatched from Moscow. How does he get there, and how long does it take? He and his two uh, fellow classmates um, take off from Moscow, and 
remember if I remember the exact way it went. They they take the rail. They take maybe they take an airplane first, then they get on the rail, then they go up to the Arctic Ocean, and they take these. Of course, they're going during the months when the Arctic Ocean is navigable, and they take this boat around the ocean and then down again and get on the Pechora River to head south, where they take another kind of smaller boat on the Usa River, and the Usa River takes them, in theory, to Abies, which is the town that's where the camp administration was located. Mm -hmm. But in his case, and in the case of many prisoners, about um, several miles away, the boat that they're on gets stuck in the ice, mm -hmm. and they all disembark and they walk the rest of the way. The trip from Moscow to the camp administration takes about 45 days, and the last 10 of them were spent trudging in unmarked territory, these three boys with six horses mm -hmm. that they were given, that they had to sign for, mm -hmm. and that they feared losing or killing because then that would be a mismanagement of socialist property and they could end up in the gulag. Mm -hmm. So already they understand how the gulag works on their way in. Mm -hmm. Now when they get there, uh, in Abiez, I guess, what do they find? Um. Well, he asks to be shown around. Oh, first of all, they go to the camp administration for two or three weeks to get to know people, get to know what's happening, get their assignments. And then they're taken out to the units where they're going to be. And he's in the second to the most northern part um, of the whole camp. So he is above the Arctic Circle. And he gets taken to his camp and he's horrified to see that there are hundreds and hundreds of prisoners in his unit that he's supposed to oversee, and there are no barracks. And it's October. They just celebrated the October Revolution <laughs> anniversary, and it's October. So he finds prisoners sleeping outside after working for 10 or 12 hours a day um, on, you know, di probably digging by their hands the embankments for a rail line. So he finds also that because the boat is stuck in the um, ice, that there's no, there's just nothing to eat there. They have a little sugar and a little flour and that sort of thing. So the conditions are absolutely not what he had expected or had been told in Moscow that they would be. It was very uh, dismal and scary because he said he's looking around to see how prisoners are sleeping and some of them have, you know, are lying on the ground with their hats and all their clothing on and they're covering their heads up with twigs thinking that will keep the icy Arctic wind off of them at night. But in the background, he said, I could see there were carpenters building coffins. So the death rates were quite high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what does he do? He and his friend who's in the district right above him, they get together and they decide that there's nobody around for them to ask. They really are totally out there alone. By the way, there's no communication mm -hmm. except from this device that's kind of like a walkie-talkie. He calls it the selector. They can talk to people with that selector, but otherwise he's out there with in the middle of really in the middle of nowhere. And they decide between the two of them that what they can do is to take two weeks out of the plan and build barracks for the workers. They decided on their way in, they saw a bunch of logs floating down the Pichor River that were unclaimed, and they could bring prisoners out there, get those logs, build the build the camp barracks for two weeks, and they've got the prisoners on board with this, and they agreed, everybody agreed not to tell anybody because they were going to lie to the authorities already about um, the kind of work they did because every day they call on the selector saying, how many prisoners went to work and how much do we need to pay them in food? Mm -hmm. And he would lie for two weeks, but then the prisoners would agree, agree that in the last two weeks after the barracks were built, they would work double time, which they did. So they got them some barracks built. Mm -hmm. But then this comes to the attention of the authorities, doesn't it? Somebody rats on him. Yeah. <laughs> and he gets called to uh, back to Abies with all the Communist Party and Gulag and KVD people there. And they try to kick him out of the party for lying mm -hmm. to the authorities about what they were doing the first two weeks. And he is shocked. This is his first, it looks like his first acquaintance with how corrupt and crazy life can be in Stalin's Russia. Mm -hmm. And that is, you you know, if you can still go under for doing something good because they can catch you on doing something bad in the process. Mm -hmm. 
like pulling the wool over their eyes, as he said. Mm -hmm. He gets out of it because he starts to tell his story and the people in the audience keep shouting down the secretary of the party who wants to kick him out of the party and saying, let this young man tell his story. And then they start screaming, maladietz, maladietz, good job, good job. And he doesn't get kicked out of the party, but he's warned. So then he uh, oversees the building of a railroad, correct? Correct. Yes. And um, explain the work regime. Exactly what do they do? When do they start? What do they eat? What kind of equipment do they have? That sort of thing. They, um, he's in charge. I like to say that Machulski isn't like – he's not the big boss of the camp. And those are the bosses that pe most people in our literature, like Solzhenitsyn, has quite a lot to say about the bosses of camps. But he's a little boss. He's down at the bottom, and he's the head of units of prisoners. That is not to say that he didn't have a lot of prisoners under him, but he didn't have the stature. He didn't have a fancy house and help and all. He just was living in his mud hut there. Um, and he would get up with the prisoners every day and take them out for 12 hours. Well, it started out 10 hours after the war started, went to 12-hour workdays, um, to go out to um, build the embankments and uh, lay down the sleepers and try to build this rail line, they didn't have very good equipment. And I know this from also studying other um, railroad building camps. They had very poor equipment. Actually, a lot of it was dug by hand or with point. If you see, there's a picture in my book, actually, mm -hmm. of these people standing on, a, on an embankment that they're um, building, and they have sort of um, pointed sticks in their hands, and they're wearing street clothes. Mm -hmm. Because although they were supposed to be uh, fed well and clothed, um, they didn't always get clothing. And the food rations went like this. They worked according to how much they, um, uh, no, they ate according to how much they worked. So if you fulfilled your plan and worked your norm for the day, you would get 600 grams of bread and a watery soup in every 24-hour period. If you didn't fulfill your plan, you got 300 grams of bread and the soup. And if you overfulfilled it, you got 800 grams. Now, 300 grams of bread is 10 ounces, which I think is about eight or 10 slices of bread and a watery soup for 24 hours. So there are people who do say that, especially prisoners who write about this, say that even if you are a norm fulfiller and you work um, every day out in the elements like that on 600 grams of bread, it is a starvation diet. So there, there had to be a lot of starvation, and we know there was a lot of starvation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, tell, who were these prisoners exactly? I know they fall into two interesting groups, and I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the criminals because they didn't work. But explain exactly who they were, and try to do it from two perspectives, one from Machulski's perspective and then from the historian's perspective, that is, mm -hmm. who they were. Yeah. The, um, he did have two distinct groups. He had mostly men, by the way, in his camp, although there were a few times he had women there housed uh, temporarily, but mostly men. He was um, given the assignment, first of all, to work with criminal prisoners. And he, when he went into their barracks, as he was taught to do, and to say hello to them, he realized that they didn't really care about him at all, and nor they wouldn't even look at him. And he, um, he had to work to cajole them to get to work. And these are these are petty criminals, rapists, um, thieves, you know. In the gulag, though, they had a higher sort of status than the other set of prisoners he also worked with, which were the um, intellectuals, the 58ers, as they're called, un arrested under Statute 58, um, who were counter-revolutionaries, who in their minds were, you know, intelligentsia, and they were anti-Soviet. Now, the NKVD always felt that the criminals were at least reformable. And to take you back a little bit, at the beginning of the Gulag experience, say when they set up um, the camps in Solovki in the 20s, they had a huge component of uh, reform, reform through labor. We can teach these people not to be anti-Soviet and to do their work. And the easiest people to reform were the criminals. That's what they felt. Now, the intelligentsia, the people who were arrested just for being counter-revolutionary or anti-party or something, they didn't try to reform them. So in some ways, the world was upside down mm -hmm. from what we understand. So the criminals were in charge of things. 
And if the criminals chose not to work, <clears throat> they often didn't work because people were scared of them. He even details some of the things that they do to pick on each other, pick on people they didn't like. They kill people. So he was under the gun, though, because um, he had all the time his bosses saying, if you don't fulfill this plan, then you're in trouble. So he went in to talk to the um, prisoners. And remember, he was 22 or 23 years old by then. He was still very, I don't know, young and <laughs> optimistic. And he went in to negotiate with them, and he managed to strike a deal with them and get them to work by giving them more and better food. In fact, allowing them to pick somebody who would actually be a cook that he could place into the kitchen that would guarantee that these guys got the right kind of food that they deserved if they went out to work. Now, you talked a little bit about the 58ers, that is, uh, the politicals, as they were sometimes called. Mm -hmm. What actually had they done? How did they run afoul of the Soviet authorities and end up in a place like... Um, uh, Pechorlag, which is the, the camp. Um, well, it's it's hard to answer that question because it could be anything. And you know, when um, when people were arrested, um, you know, if you've read, I'm sure some many people have read um, Ginsburg's book on uh, Into the Whirlwind, mm -hmm. how she was arrested. She was arrested. She was a party worker and an intellectual and she was arrested because her boss was arrested and if he had been arrested by the authorities <clears throat> then why didn't she denounce him mm -hmm. as a criminal and she didn't so they arrested her so it could be on any pretext any charge um so these people were in for telling an anecdote or hearing an anecdote mm -hmm. Or just there was any pretext at all that as soon as it got said, you couldn't erase, and they were thrown into the gulag. Yeah, the reason I mentioned is that I don't want anyone to understand, uh, misunderstand, I should say, anti-Soviet activities. Right. Uh, the, 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 um, the catchment area was very broad for anti-Soviet activities, and it could be almost anything. Now, and one of the groups that he talks about is the uh, our peasants, our kulaks. What, what had they done, just to refresh our memory. The Kulaks were the, they were the peasants of the country. When the Bolshevik revolution took place, about 85% of the country was farmer or peasants. And um, in 1929, Stalin, after he'd taken power from Lenin, decided that he would initiate the first five-year plan, which in his mind was going to take Russia from being a backwards peasant-filled nation to being an industrial power in a few years. And he decided to collectivize. In other words, to go into the peasant areas and take away their land ownership and set them up on government-owned farms. Because um, doing this, he thought, would bring in enough money and fuel the industrialization, which is what Stalin was really interested in. So in the process, if anybody has ever dealt with farmers, you'll know that they can be um, bullheaded and they are very hard workers. They didn't want this to go on and they started uh, going against Soviet power and there were lots of fights because the Soviets came in and forcibly requisitioned all their grain and all their property. And so the government named them kulaks. Anybody who had like a... Um, a horse or a cow or some pigs or something because they said you are a rich peasant and rich peasants, you know, are bourgeois and they go. And so they rounded up, I don't even know how many millions of people and took them away from the areas where they were, had traditionally lived for centuries and centuries and sent them into exile. They sent them to gulag camps or they sent them to um, places near gulag camps or even whole settlements where they were supposed to live. So a lot of times, Machulski encounters a prisoner, and he can tell by looking that he had previously been a well-fed kid who worked outdoors and was strong, and that would be, you know, the kulak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, a question I had while reading this portion of the book um, concerns what Machulski chose to remember and what he did not choose to remember in the, the pages of the memoir. Uh, I would guess, and I'm 
asking really you for your expertise here that while he was in charge of these people, many of them died. And uh, he doesn't really um, discuss that. He doesn't mention it very much. He does say sometimes, especially when his life is threatened, he says, you know, all I have for my workforce. And you'll notice he, he calls the um, he calls the prisoners his workforce, mm-hmm. the beginning of every chapter. I kept that. I think that's really indicative of what his whole orientation is. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, what am I, how am I supposed to do this job with this emaciated, ill-fed, you know, sick workforce? But no, he does not at all um, talk very much about the deprivations and the death that had to be taking place. And we read about it in other memoirs. And this is one of the reasons that led me in my introduction to bring in those voices to sort of supplement his account before you read his account with what prisoners are saying about the very same things he's experiencing, except not saying. And his, I think his thing, you know, to back up a minute, Machulski was a Communist Party member and a believer in the utopia of socialism, I think, till the end of his life. Mm-hmm. He told me that when I met him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that even though he wanted to tell this story, he still remained loyal to the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. So what I, what I really feel is you have to read this memoir knowing that those things took place, and we have to read it for what he tells us. And what he doesn't tell us, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because the interesting thing from my perspective is the fact that there is an entirely different way to look at what he was doing. Uh, One could put together a set of words that were a little bit like, uh, you know, um, Mr. Machulski was an underboss in a slave labor camp Mm -hmm. in which he supervised the construction of railroad embankments, thereby working countless number of innocent people to death. Right. That, that sentence would, from our perspective, be largely true. I mean, people would say that and say, yes, that is in fact what was going on. But he didn't see it like that, did he? No, he didn't. No, and maybe he, you could talk a little bit about that. I think he was trying to, um, I think he was trying to, I believe Mr., I think Machulski saw himself as a good man in a bad situation. And Unfortunately, you know, I took this memoir home with me and I never spoke to Machulski much about it. I only I managed to talk to his family afterwards when he had already passed away. So I know that this gulag experience happening as it did from the ages of like 22 to 28 seared him and if you know affected him his whole life he continued to tell stories about it and try to work it out. That's why that was his impulse in writing the memoir. But he, he wasn't um, going to go into the particulars that didn't look that good. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think we have to face that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I've read other memoirs like this. I'm thinking about some uh, um, Nazi memoirs, for instance, the, one of the commandants at, uh, I forget which camp, I want to say Auschwitz, I don't know. Um, but but the, the thing that always strikes me about, when, when these people tell their story is that they are, A, unrepentant. Um, they, they will sometimes question the execution of certain things, but they are unrepentant about what they did. And then, B, they focus on uh, their achievements, really. And Machulski does this in the memoir quite a bit. He says, yes. I faced really difficult conditions, but I achieved this. Um, and, and it's almost as if he doesn't see the prisoners, really, that they're kind of part of the you know, that they're part of the background. They're an implement that he has because he's what he really wants to focus on what he, what he managed to do, which, you know, again, is a kind of impressive thing under very um, difficult circumstances. Admittedly, it involved the death of, I don't know how many people and he doesn't tell us, but I don't think he ever really, you know, again, I think this is consistent with other things that I've read that that mindset really uh, has a hold of him and did even late in life that he was never willing to say all of this was, bankrupt in some way. Would you agree with that? I would. And as close as he comes to it is in his chapter, he calls the real essence of the gulag, Mm -hmm. where he says that um, how he had stopped believing that the NKVD, the the punitive organs, as he calls them, were there just to protect people because he saw the opposite of that. And he thought that the government was, you know, 
really smart in the way it you know came in and got rid of the bosses who had allowed prisoners to die. But then he goes on with several other things. Most of them are questions about why, when we had the chance to set up socialism, the best government ever, we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. It's all sort of a higher level than saying, why did we kill so many people for this idea? And why did we do this all so badly? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, he doesn't, um, he doesn't ever get down to the level. You don't see him wringing his hands mm-hmm. very much about uh, prisoners. The best he can do, I think, or the best he does maybe is when he tells the story of the other boss who was an executioner. Mm-hmm. And I think he uses those stories as the only way into that problem of how really bad things were. Mm-hmm. He does say at one point early in the book, and I found this quite interesting because it it appears as a kind of setting the stage. He says, uh, I was born right after the revolution, and he was. He was born in 1918, if I recall, mm-hmm. and I grew up on, on Bolshevik propaganda. Right. This is all I knew. and 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 this kind of sets the stage for everything that, that follows, and it puts him in a mindset which you know, I kind of fear that people are forgetting about, that there, there were most people, or most, I don't know, a lot of people were true believers like this. And if they were ambitious at all, this is what you had to do. So these, this confluence of interests um, really kind of drove the entire project. But he well, does mention this. He does say, you know, I, I did believe all these things because I was raised in this environment. And he was um... – you know, he does bring up at the beginning in that same area that, you know, how heroic the NKVD was. Mm-hmm. And people did believe that when Zhezhinsky set it up, he called the Cheka, the earlier, you know, name for the NKVD. He called them the sword and flame of the revolution. Mm-hmm. And even today, you know, Putin has been known to call himself a Czechist. Mm-hmm. So it, even through all that we've been through... <laughs> They are still the sword and flame of the revolution, and, and he believed it. And I believe that he did, and I believe that there are, you know, his generation and many generations believed in the Soviet Union and believed in its ideals and believed its propaganda. Mm-hmm. And how did he, you know, we, we have a – I guess the, this is the question. I'll put it very bluntly. How, what did he think about the politicals themselves, that is, the people that he was working in and uh, he, was, he was working to death and starving? Did he think they were guilty of anything? The politicals? Yeah. Um, I can only judge on the one chapter or two chapters he's got in there, but he seemed to like them. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't you think so? He, yeah, I did. Yeah. It was the first barracks he ever went into where everything was neat and orderly, and the people were very kind, and they seemed very um, uh, smart, and he used them. Of course, that's the dirty secret you know, behind the gulag is when they needed people to be norm setters and economists and all, they would turn to the political prisoners. And even if it was, you know, somewhat illegal, they were, you know, they had to turn to them. He does go on to say that, you know, the political prisoners could also cause trouble. You know, uh, they wouldn't kill people like the criminal prisoners, but they would start rumors. Mm -hmm. And they would get together and be a cabal of rumor mongering so that people had to look into what they were saying. And then there would be consequences. But I, I got the feeling that, you know, Machulski himself... I don't think I would call him an intellectual, but his father was a professor. Mm-hmm, right. So he probably understood that class very well. Yeah, I think that's right. So I, I want to talk about one aspect of the book that I found kind of peculiar because he uh, – I don't know how many women were in the camp, but he spends a, he spends a pretty considerable amount of time talking about women. And he's uh, – in this instance, he is shocked about the way they're treated. He, he mentions it in a few places in the, in the memoir. He that, that this really does kind of rub up against his sensibilities. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Are you talking about um, how, how they treated mothers? Yes, how they, how they treated mothers. And then at the end of the book, when he talks about the real essence of, um, of the camps, he, he has a special paragraph devoted, a couple of paragraphs devoted to the treatment of women. Yeah, that does seem to really rub him, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, he says, he talks about how, um, women, if they had children and they were first as they were breastfeeding, they were only given the time to breastfeed in a few minutes to cuddle with their children. And then the child would be taken away from them. And who knows if they ever got them back and that, um, why were we so barbaric? Mm-hmm. I think he says, um, why did we devastate these mother's souls? And 
I think he had the same feeling that, I don't know if you ever read the memoir by Lev Kopolev, To Be Preserved Forever. Yeah. Kopolev gets into trouble because he's worried that with all the pillaging and the raping going on, as the Soviets roll into Poland and Western Ukraine, all this is going on. What is it going to mean for the population after this is all over? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Machulski's really worked up about since he was such um, an idealist about socialism. Mm-hmm. So why were we mistreating these women? Mm-hmm. We have no right to. And what does it mean for later? And he discusses the, uh, I believe he discusses camp wives, the, the phenomenon of taking a camp wife, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. Maybe you could say, explain what that is. Um, a camp wife it turned out to be quite common. People um, in the camps, well, working for the camps and prisoners had, had them. They were partners, even though they were married otherwise in their real lives. So since they had no access to the real lives, people would gravitate towards each other and try to stay together. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the the most shocking one was the young woman who was a murderer who was in, who had a camp husband. Mm-hmm. And she tried to manipulate him. In fact, she did manipulate him into allowing her camp husband to come. And when he came um, for visits, because he was like a norm setter or something in another camp, when he came to visit, they got to spend the night together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, so it was pretty common among prisoners and among um the NKVD who's running the camps. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, so let's um, try to complete the circle. How does uh, Machulski um, come to leave the camp system? Eventually, well, I think he would say that he was blessed because he got ill and he had to go into the hospital and they thought he had something terrible, but it turns out he didn't. He got an easier job after that. But he had come to the attention already of the Communist Party apparatus at the camp for his work. And um, when the Soviet Union was already winning the war and the chasing the Nazis out, they wanted him to get um, involved in the work of the young communist organization, the Komsomol, and help the Komsomol run things at the camp and help prisoners and Mostly not the prisoners so much as the personnel. And so he became a consul against his wishes, actually. He fought to stay on as an engineer. That was his training. But he ended up having to head up uh, a consul organization. And then when um, he got transferred, and by the way, you'll notice in the book, he was transferred maybe six times mm-hmm. in his six years. Now, this was a common um, thing happening in the Gulag. Not only were the personnel tran- transferred all around, but the prisoners as well which is, you know, sets up a kind of a hell for researchers who are trying to figure out how many prisoners there were, <laughs> how many people died, because there was so much movement from camp to camp. So he gets transferred um, to uh, a region south of where he was to help recover uh, the, ha- the highways a lot around Kharkov. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then he really is totally in the, um, in the Komsomol Wing, and he manages somehow in a complicated maneuver to get himself reclassified. So he's no longer an employee of Gulag NKVD. He moves out of Gulag to the administration of highways NKVD. Mm -hmm. So that is his way of getting out of the Gulag because, as he says, once you get into the Gulag and work there, it's very hard to leave. Mm I see. And then he goes on to a, a really quite career, doesn't he? I mean, in, in both, uh, I don't know about the Communist Party, but uh, I don't know how he got there, but in, uh, in the diplomatic corps of all places. Yes, yeah, sometime um, as he was working as a consul, um, at the very end when he was trying to get out, somebody approached him and said, we have, we, li- we think a lot of you and we have these two spots. We'd like you to study if you're interested in going to the foreign ministry and uh, become a diplomat. And he was given, I think, um, six months or something to study like crazy for this test, which he evidently passed, and he became a he became a, an employee of the foreign ministry. Mm-hmm. That isn't to say he didn't work for the NKVD mm-hmm. still, but he did. Um, but then he had a fantastic career. He spent 25 years in China, and he was the chargé d'affaires in China for, in, for 15 years or something. Uh, after which he came back and worked for the Central Committee uh, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union under Andropov on their China section. Mm-hmm. So he managed to have a wonderful career. And 
you know, I don't didn't know him personally very well at all. I met him maybe three times, but um, I think he must have been a very talented employee. Yeah. So how, how did he – did you ever get an impression while you were talking to him about how he took the fall of the Soviet Union? What did he think about it? Um, he was mixed. I think he was very mixed about it. He thought, I think he was really – he really welcomed Glasnost because mm-hmm. he felt he was getting towards the end of his life and he really felt that things should be said and it was bad to cover up so much. But again, he would not have been a Gorbachev um, follower because – Gorbachev gave up the empire, mm-hmm. and um, he came down on that, I'm sure. Um, everybody his age that I knew, actually, <laughs> had that same impression that, you know, why did we have to give up our empire? Why did he let it go mm-hmm. and and give us this rump nation that has nothing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? How was he um, – now, this was the early uh, 90s. I was in uh, the in Russia in the early 90s. How was how he getting by? How was he living? Because I know there was, there was hyperinflation and – Actually, food was short, and people were selling everything. I remember in the early 90s, there were these things, talkuchki, on every corner. There were these little crowds of people selling everything. I know, old shoes. Yeah, pockets. everything. Was he one of those people, or did he, was he better off than that? I, I can only say, I only have one thing to say about that, is I, when I put my ad in Pravda, I said, I think I said in the ad that I would pay for um, expenses. Mm-hmm. I had, <laughs> at the time, I had $300 that Princeton University gave me. Mm-hmm. Sounds like such a little amount now. And it was. And um, I put the ad in Pravda with it. And I offered to pay each one of the people I met for transport costs. Or even if I went to their house, I gave them 10 rubles mm-hmm. or something like that. Or 100 rubles. I can't remember. And then I paid the rest to Alachka for taking the phone part mm-hmm. on. Um, but he was the only one I met who, when I tried to pay him, he said, no. You misunderstand me already. I'm a member of the Communist Party, and this is this would be considered educational. Mm-hmm. And I would never take money from you for what I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. So he, I don't think he was as poor as um, some of the pensioners I met. Mm-hmm. And uh, when did he die and how? He died of natural causes, and now I have to look here. Um, let me look here. In 1999... But, and he survived by uh, at least a son. You mentioned he has a son. son. Uh-huh, I see. Son who works for the foreign ministry as well. I see. All right. Well, it's a fascinating memoir, uh, Deborah. We've taken up a, a lot of your time, and I really appreciate you speaking with us today. Uh, we've been talking to uh, Deborah Capel about uh, her book Gulag Boss, a Soviet memoir. Uh, she translated it and introduced it. It's a it's a really fascinating read for anyone interested in. Mm, I guess I would just say the Soviet Union, Soviet history, and also uh, the kind of mechanics of memoirs themselves and of memory, because uh, Malchuski, the, the person that wrote the memoir, really is a, is a very interesting figure. Deborah, why don't you conclude the interview by answering our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, my next project is the project that I actually abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> Because I couldn't get anywhere in any country um, on the Soviet advisors in China. Now I have these 30 fantastic interviews mm-hmm. with these advisors. I tried to be scientific and ask them all the same question. Mm-hmm. However, I also left my tape recorder on and asked them about their lives. Yeah. So not only do I have – each interview is about 40 pages long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have fantastic material um, not only about China but about – all these people who could be, it could be another memoir about making it in the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. People would say, I came to Moscow in birch bark shoes, right. and then I did this and went to China. Mm-hmm. So all that. So the Chinese actually, Chinese scholars are actually way more interested in the Sino-Soviet relationship in the 50s, and they're starting to work on it. So I'm taking hope from that, and maybe I'll find colleagues there, mm-hmm. because I don't think I'll find any in Russia right now yet. Mm-hmm. Since, you know, for the Russians, that um, expenditure of time and money ended badly. It ended in the Sino-Soviet rift. Mm-hmm. So they're not interested. Mm-hmm. At least I haven't found one. If anybody listening knows them, <laughs> please <laughs> tell them to contact me. So I think there's great possibilities to use this interview material. So I'm going back to it. Okay. Well, it sounds like a fantastic project, and I look forward to reading the book when it's done. Okay. Thanks. All right. Well, Deborah, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. 
You've been listening to an interview with Deborah Capel about her new book, Gulag Boss, a Soviet memoir by Fyodor Vasilyevich Machulski. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.